grace. Let's give, let's thank Jim for. Well, good morning, everyone, on this cold morning. Let's, um, let's have a prayer together before we enjoy God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, Tulsa, Oklahoma, January 10th, 2016. We just want to say, Lord, it is a great day to be your kids and to serve you and to be a part of this church. And we pray that as your word is preached that, well, we just want to claim the promise of your word that it would not return void, but it would um, encourage us and cause us to walk more closely with you in our most holy faith. Lord, we give you all the glory for anything that is in us that is pleasing to you. We give you all the glory and all the praise. So we thank you and we bless you now. I ask for your anointing and um, just uh, want to acknowledge that without you, I and we are nothing. But with you, we are mighty. And we praise you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to speak a word that I hope is uh, startling to some of you, provocative, that is. Um, I hope it's a reminder to others. I hope that it will be a pebble in all our shoes as we move forward uh, in our faith. By that I mean one of those messages I hope that you remember all of your lives. Uh, I know that's a big request, but... Uh, so I want to preach on teach us, Lord, to hate. I was at a Christmas party this past year uh, that was hosted by a company I'm affiliated with, and uh, it's a Christian group. And so we were sitting around before we did the uh, uh, Secret Santa portion of the night, and the owner of the company uh, who's a fine Christian man, he wanted to exhort us, and so he raised this question. He said, what was it about David, that King David, that made it said of him that he is a man after God's own heart? Uh, that is a verse in Acts 13, verse 22, where Paul is talking to the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, and uh, he actually says that the Lord said that of David, that here is a man after my own heart. And Bob, the owner of this company, was asking, why, why did God say that of David? And different people in the room offered different answers. Uh, the first person said, well, I think it was because he was such a worshiper. And you can remember how David danced before the Lord, right? And he offended some, but he danced with all his might. He was a worshiper. And then somebody else said, probably thinking of Psalm 139, I think it's because David loved God's word. You know, Psalm 119 is just verse after verse after verse of David's love for God's word. Somebody else said, I think it's because he was obedient in everything God asked him to do, or he was, he was so obedient. And Bob said, yeah, he was obedient, but 
if you remember, he was also a murderer and a liar and an adulterer, referring to Bathsheba and setting up Uriah to be killed. Um, Bob went on to say very powerfully to me that the reason David was a man after God's own heart is because he hated God's enemies with a perfect hatred. He was quoting the last few verses of Psalm 139. Let me read those to you. David says, Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. The King James Version says, the RSV says, the New American Standard Bible says, with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Well, the group kind of took that in. You know, that's a, a different take on David. And uh, I don't want you to go from here thinking that I think that is the distinguishing reason that God said that about David. That's not my point. But uh, the group commented, uh, boy, I've never heard a sermon on hate. Um, you know, and, and one very caring Christian lady who is actually a nurse, and she's an oncology nurse, she was in the room and she said, she said, boy, everything we're taught is about love. I'm going to have to think about this. You know, she was just trying to kind of take it in and, and get her head around that concept. And though the discussion went a different direction from there, this idea of hatred and is there anything we are to hate stuck in my mind. For example, I thought of Proverbs uh, uh, 16, excuse me, 6, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, where there's a list of things that God hates. Let me read that to you. There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him, proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. So here's a list of things that God hates. And if you remember in the New Testament, Jesus even said we're to hate some things. Do you remember what he said we're to hate? Um, he said we're to hate father and mother and even our own lives. Do you remember that verse? We'll take a look at it later. And I know that Jesus also promised that if we follow him, we will be hated, won't we? That if we follow him devotedly, we too will be hated just as he was hated. So since then, I've come to a conclusion that I want to hoist upon you, uh, for your consideration, and that is that to be a successful Christian, to be an effective Christian, just as we are told in 1 John that we must be perfected in love, to be that successful Christian, 
we must also be perfected in hate. Let me say that again. I've come to the conclusion that to be a successful Christian, an effective Christian, just as we must be perfected in love, we must also be perfected in hate. This is what David asserted to the Lord. I have, I have a perfect hatred. Test my heart. See if that's true. And so I went to my concordance and I read through most of the some 136 verses that are about hate or hatred in the Bible. And another thing I realized, it just kind of came to my mind, is that ancient and primitive cultures, in those cultures, it is a noble thing to hate your enemies. You know, Islam has no corner on that belief. The Jews believe that as well. King David believed it as well, that it is a noble thing to defend the honor of God. And that if you are fully devoted to God, you will hate God's enemies. That is a belief of ancient, primitive, and many even cultures in our day. But I want to read a verse from the New Testament, from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus cuts across that thinking in a revolutionary, uh, incredible dividing line, an incredible demarcation. He says in verse 43 of Matthew 5, he says, You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think in the King James it says, who spitefully use you. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Folks, these were revolutionary words. To love your enemies? To love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This was a stunning and remains a stunning dividing line between Christianity and the other religions of the world. So if we're to love our enemies, then it begs the question, what is it we are to hate? Let's get a little bit more specific based on the word of God, what it is we are to hate. In order to answer that question, let's look at some of the definitions of hate. In Webster's, we see that to hate means to have an intense hostility or aversion towards someone or something. Feelings or thoughts or convictions of intense hostility. And in the Greek, the Greek word is meseo, and it means to hate. And it's used three ways in the scriptures. And this is pretty important as you read scriptures about hate to decide which, um, which meaning are you dealing with. The first one is a malicious and unjustifiable feeling toward others or things. So in most cases, this hatred is 
bad and it's against someone who doesn't deserve it or some thought against something. Number two, it's also used of a righteous feeling of aversion or hostility toward what is evil. And then number three, a relative preference or disregard of one thing as compared to another. Let's look at Titus 3.3 and we'll see um, the, first, the first type. For we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So out in the world, under the devil's control, you, genuinely, you, you generally are just suspicious and hateful of other people. We know we need Christ, don't we? We need Christ to change these hearts of hate into hearts of love. The second meaning, we could go to Jude 22 and 23. Let me see that one. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So that's a righteous hatred um, against something that's evil. And then in Matthew 6.24, we read about um, you can't serve God and money. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches. So do you see the different meanings, the different ways that it's used? This is where you nod your head, yes, up and down. Thank you. So with that understanding, let's look at what we are to hate. First of all, we are to hate evil and personal, uh, personal sin. Amen? We're to hate evil and personal sin. When Bob was talking and I was kind of thinking, you know, I was, I was, part of me was agreeing with, he, what, with what he said and was excited about pondering this, but another part of me was saying, I know there's something wrong with what he's saying, and I hadn't quite dialed up in my, in my mind where Jesus said, love your enemies yet. Uh, but I did think about Proverbs 8.13. Um, if you ask most Bible teachers, tell me where in Proverbs it talks about the fear of the Lord. Most of us can say, well, Proverbs 1.7 says the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How many of you know that verse? You know where it is. Uh, it's, it's in your heart. It's in your mind. It's in your spirit. But what I said to the group was, um, how many of you are familiar with Proverbs 8.13? And nobody raised their hand. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. If there's any verse that I want you to walk out of this room uh, remembering, it's that verse. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Now, we know that there are different kinds of evil. For example, there, are, there is systemic evil, isn't there? For example, Jesus 
uh, called the Pharisees hypocrites to their face when he was talking about how, uh, when he was addressing their religious traditions that were in violation of the commandment of God. Do you remember that passage where he talks about that tradition the Pharisees had of encouraging people to give the money that they would have used to support their parents to, to, to make a declaration that this money that would have gone to support you, mom and dad, I'm giving to God. And so it's going to the treasury that, by the way, feeds and enriches the Pharisees. And so Jesus took on that systemic evil of the religious traditions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'm so proud in our body that we have some individuals that God has raised up to address systemic evil in our times. For, for example, uh, Mike, I don't want to embarrass you, but I'm so grateful to God that he has raised you up to address homelessness and poverty and addiction and suicide. I'm grateful for the years that God used Bill to address the abortion industry, that systemic evil that is in our culture. And one exciting new one that I want to tell you about is my daughter Esther. Um, she's just a couple weeks into a job of addressing sex trafficking. And what she does is she recruits uh, truckers and law enforcement and um, Department of Transportation groups around the United States to be on the lookout for young girls who are being pimped in trucking parking lots. And uh, isn't that a worthwhile ministry? And so truckers in all 50 states are watching the parking lots and calling the police if they see a young girl who's being victimized and pimped uh, in that parking lot. That is a systemic evil that I'm so grateful to God that he is raising her up to help with that. But I want to emphasize really this morning personal sin uh, because we have more control over that, don't we? Um, the desire to hate personal sin in us because the ugly truth is, and I think you'll agree with me on this, we don't hate sin enough, do we? We don't hate sin enough. Um, you know, one of the things that we read that the Lord hates is feet that run rapidly to evil. Anybody been guilty of that besides me in this room? Not resisting sin, but rather running rapidly to it in my life sometimes. Uh, in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul said, talked about his hatred of personal sin. He said, for that which I am doing, I do not understand. I am practicing what, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. The very thing. Thing I hate. I know every one of you can relate to this. None of us are immune to doing the very thing, or at least in the past, having done the very thing 
that we hate. When, we, when Laura and I led BASIC, we had a, a teaching called it to, to encourage the kids to fight sin. And the teaching was, be a junkyard dog. And the idea was, uh, we, we created this imagery of their hearts having a high cyclone fence around them. And inside was a junkyard dog. And it was, it was them. It, they were there to watch their heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And so we asked them to envision this snarling, uh, uh, drooling, you know, Doberman uh, at the inside of their heart at the, at the cyclone fence. And whenever a robber would come or a, a thief or a temptation, that dog was supposed to go nuts, as we've all seen a dog like that do. Maybe the metaphor would have been better to have two Doberman pinchers. One is the, our will, representing our will, and the other representing the Holy Spirit in our heart, without whom we can't fight sin anyway. So that's probably a better imagery of two dogs. But when the master comes, what happens? Oh, the dogs, they, they turn in circles. They're wagging their little stubby tails. Um, and they're so happy to see the master that they just become docile and loving and licking his feet, licking his hands, licking his face. Not a bad image. Be a junkyard dog. Again, the ugly truth is we don't hate sin with a perfect and I want us to do all we can to hate sin more. Here are some quotes that might help you. Richard Baxter was an English Puritan in the 1600s. He said, consider well the office, the bloodshed, and the holy life of Christ. His office is to expiate, that means pay the penalty for sin, and to destroy it. His blood was shed for it. His life condemned it. Love Christ, and you will hate that which caused his death. Love him, and you will love to be made like him, and hate that which is so contrary to Christ. So his idea was focus on Christ and your love for Christ rather than focus on hating sin. Jonathan Edwards kind of had the practice makes perfect idea in this quote anyway. He said, the more a Christian hates sin, the more he desires to hate it. You remember that old Indian proverb about each of us has a white dog and a black dog in our heart fighting, and which one is going to win? It's the, one that we're, it's the one that we feed. That's the one that's going to win. And then a man named Richard Sibbs, uh, he was also in the 1600s, an Anglican theologian, he said, if our hatred of sin is true, we hate all evil in ourselves foremost. How many of you would say that's true of you? The thing that bothers you the most is the evil inside you. And that's where your focus is. I'm going to focus on that and secondarily in others. I say, Lord, teach us to hate sin and evil, especially 
in ourselves with a perfect hatred. Lord, hear that prayer in Jesus' name. What else are we to hate according to the scriptures? Well, we're to hate the allure of the world, aren't we? And even our own lives. This is a scary one for me because I have a very nice life. And so I, I constantly am a little bit on edge in my spirit about is my nice life taking too much hold of me? Am I remaining sharp? Am I remaining a dynamic Christian? Let me read. Well, before we do that, you know, God has blessed us with so many blessings, hasn't he? I just listed a few. The beauty of nature. The joy of love. The mystery of wonder. The gift of children. Delicious food. Can I get an amen? about delicious food. I was going to tease Tom Lotz. I don't see him. Maybe he's within the sound of my voice, but Tom loves comfort food. He loves mashed potatoes. He loves meatloaf smothered in gravy. And he loves macaroni and cheese. Do you ever go to a restaurant and you're determined to buy a salad and then you see macaroni and cheese? And it's just like, oh, Lord, help me, help me. A good cup of coffee in the morning. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> Who is that back there? Oh, it's Nicole. She's hot. She's worshiping. <laughs> Look at these verses. First John 2.15. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then the verse we referred to early, earlier, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, what, is, what does the next line say from your memory? Can you remember? He cannot be my disciple. So how do we... We love our wives. We love our spouses. We love our children. We love our parents. How do we love our lives? So how do we incorporate that? Remember the third, de third definition that it's the preference of one thing over another. That's definitely the, the uh, definition that's meant here. But let's keep going. Luke 8.14 talks about, um, you know, the sower and the seed and how our, our joys in this life can steal away that seed. Luke 8.14 And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And then, I bet you don't know the phrase there after that. 
Uh, I didn't until I was reminded in this message. The consequence of that is they bring no fruit to maturity. And so maybe ask yourself, am I bringing fruit to maturity in my life? Maybe I've started, but I'm not finishing. Uh, maybe you've led someone to the Lord, but you haven't discipled them to maturity because you've been uh, concerned about these other things. A very haunting phrase that's added to Jesus' words in Mark on this passage says, and the desires for other things enter in. Whoa, that's scary one to me. The desire for other things enter in and choke the word. I'd like you to listen to a recent message by John Piper. It's just a portion, about two minutes long, where he is talking about not wanting to be sucked in to the cares and pleasures of the world. He's referencing a text from Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 36, but he says it so well, I want you to hear it from him. By and large, in America for 300 years, the call to be a Christian has not been the call to be an alien. By and large, it hasn't been the call to be a sojourner or an exile or to be out of step. It's the call to be a respected citizen in the community. And we get angry, really angry. Watch it. Watch it. It's still true. We're, we're slowly awakening from this. People get angry. If you treat my Christianity as though it's not the norm, my views of things as not the norm. I get angry. You're taking away my culture. You're taking away my land, my history. I get mad at you because I've developed a Christianity with assumptions that assume dominance and prosperity and normal and fitting in. This is our way here. You don't like it, go somewhere else. It's just totally out of proportion. We have come to take all those relatively minor spin-offs of devotion to Jesus and elevated them above the massive, real pleasures of knowing him, loving him, and dying and being with him forever. It's everything's out of proportion in typical American Christianity. This text fills me, it has for so many years, with a longing not to be a domesticated, comfort-seeking, entertainment-addicted, prosperity-loving, security-craving, approval-desiring Christian. Don't want to be that. It's abominable to me to be that. Don't want to waste my life just fitting in so low. I want to be set free from this distortion. I want to be biblical. I want to have real, spiritual, otherworldly power on my life. I want to have stunningly countercultural, otherworldly, 
Isn't that powerful? I love his line, I don't want to be a domesticated Christian. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? Like the world is squeezing you into its mold and you're sitting there in front of the TV and you're thinking, oh my God, am I becoming a domesticated Christian? He says, I don't want to be a domesticated Christian. I don't want to be a comfort-seeking, entertainment-addicted, security-craving, approval-desiring Christian. The ugly truth is we love the world too much. Lord, teach us to hate. Richard Wormbrand uh, is a good example of a man who didn't love his own life. We were blessed to have him here in this pulpit. The Wrights often hosted him in their home. Uh, his wife, Sabina, held my precious Laura's face in her hands. This was a man of God that some of us saw and were changed by him. But listen to his story. He was a Lutheran pastor in Romania uh, in the 40s, and in August of 1944, communism came to Romania. And I'll pick up and just read a couple paragraphs from his book, Tortured for Christ. He said, the communists convened a congress of all Christian bodies in our parliament building. There were 4,000 priests, pastors, and ministers of all denominations. And these men of God chose Joseph Stalin as honorary president of this Congress. At the same time, Joseph Stalin was president of the world movement of the godless and a mass murderer of Christians. One after another, bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity are fundamentally the same and could coexist. One minister after another said words of praise toward communism and assured the new government of the loyalty of the church. Now here's what I want you to, to really hear. My wife and I were present at this Congress. Sabina told me, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so, you lose your husband. She replied, I don't wish to have a coward for a husband. Then I arose and spoke to this Congress, praising not the murderers of Christians, Joseph Stalin, but Jesus Christ, stating that our loyalty is due first to him. The speeches at this Congress were broadcast and the whole country could hear proclaimed from the rostrum of the Communist Parliament the message of Christ. Afterward, I had to pay for this, but it was worthwhile. If you remember, his payment was 14 years in prison, much of that in solitary confinement. I remember him telling as well of being in California years later when communism was becoming uh, the soup du jour among liberals in, in our country. And the same thing was happening where communism was being praised as being able to be coexistent with Christianity. And Richard got up again, and he took his shirt off. 
And he said, he pointed to a big hole in his back. Uh, who knows what they did to him there. But he had a big hole in his back from torture. And he said, this is, this is communism. And he began to point to his scars. This and this and this is communism. Here's a man who didn't love his own life. He hated father, mother, children, and wife compared to the riches of serving and loving Jesus Christ. What else are we to hate, my friends? The Bible says we're to hate the devil and all his works. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. Let's go back to that verse and let me ask you, as we go through the seven things which are an abomination to the Lord, who is the father of pride? Who is the father of lies, a lying tongue? Who is the father of hands that shed innocent blood? Who is the father that devises wicked plans? Who is the father of feet that run to evil? Who is the father of a false witness who utters lies? And who is the father of strife among brothers? His name is the devil. He goes by Satan, among other names. Satan is means adversary, and the devil means slanderer. And uh, his name appears many times in many different ways. The evil one, the enemy, the murderer, the liar, the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of darkness, the tempter, the king of death, a roaring lion, adversary, angel of the abyss, angel of light, the dragon, accuser of our brethren, serpent of old, and the deceiver. In 1 John 3, 8, Seven and eight, we read, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he what? Might destroy the works of the devil. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, we see that people are not our enemy, right? That it's the principalities and the powers that belong to the devil that are our enemies. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We don't hate sin enough. We don't hate the world enough. And I would also pose that we don't hate the devil enough. Um, it's very common in evangelical churches, mainline churches, to kind of forget about the devil, to kind of just ignore him. That just seems so ancient and so childish to point out that we have an enemy. But folks, you know we have an enemy, don't you? And I so appreciate uh, Jim and how he prays. Have you ever noticed that he prays against the schemes of the devil. He's not devil-obsessed. He's not uh, devil-afraid. But he is very devil-aware in his prayers and in his thinking and in his view of reality. I think we need more of that. Uh, not obsession, obsession, not fear, but awareness when we fight with our spouses, when we uh, are having trouble achieving a very righteous goal, do we even consider that the enemy might be thwarting us? Many of us do, but many of us don't. And so I want to ask that we rekindle that hatred for the devil and that alertness in our prayers and in our minds and in our lives that we do in fact have an enemy. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that no advantage may be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Lord, teach us to hate the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So my message this morning is really very simple, and it's this, let us be perfected in hate. Provocative, but you know how I mean it now. The hatred of sin, the hatred of the allure of the world and even our own lives, and the hatred of the enemy and all his schemes. Would you join me in praying Let's stand together if you agree with this prayer that we would be perfected in the right kind of hate. Father, we ask that you would increase our hatred of sin. I can think of many times in my life where I just casually or even quickly have run to sin. And yet you say in Proverbs 6 that you hate that, that it's an abomination to you. We also remember the preciousness of Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed because of our sin. And so, Father, we ask you to give us a divine Hatred, Lord, a divine hatred for sin, that we would be with you and in you like those junkyard dogs 
protecting those treasures that you have put in our hearts and the investments that you have made in us. Help us to remember always Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Father, we pray that you would decrease in us the allure of the world. We want to enjoy the world, Lord, robustly, but we want to wear it like a loose coat that can be shed at any moment. If we were ever in a situation like Richard Wormbrand, would we stand up? Would we shed our coat at that moment for the greater riches of Jesus Christ? We pray that we would, Lord. And when we're challenged, we pray that we do. Help us not to be seduced by all the comforts and all the advantages that we enjoy. Help us not to be seduced, Lord, by technology and by the addictions and all the things around us. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us that we have a very real enemy. And we pray that we wouldn't be obsessed on him or afraid of him, but we would be aware of his schemes. And we wouldn't be embarrassed to pray to you publicly and verbally and out loud for you to thwart the schemes and the works of the devil. We remember that he is the father of lies, that he is the father of dissension and strife in the body. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be more aware when we are being spiritually attacked. We know he prowls about seeking someone to devour. Help us to be very alert, Lord, and aware of his schemes, alert at all times. And, Lord, we want to end by just saying we surrender all. All of our allegiance is to you. We, we continue, we know we're not perfect, Lord, and we know we'll make mistakes, but we dedicate ourselves to you on this January 10th, 2016, to be true disciples of Jesus Christ, who are willing to be perfected in hate, as well as perfected in love. In Jesus' name, we ask these things and say, Amen. You can be seated. I want to just say one thing on a light note. Uh, this week, when you run into that person who says that their pastor is so anointed and his message was so powerful, I want you to say with just as much gushing and enthusiasm, oh, yes, we have the best pastors at our church as well. One of them spoke a powerful, anointed message this week about being perfected in hate. 